John introduced a new series for us last week on our Embrace Values, and he started with the first and most central of the six, Jesus at the Center. Today, I'll guide us as we dive into a second one. Over the next several weeks, we've made the choice to preach on and unpack our values because they really do put language to the way that we make decisions and go about doing ministry here. They express how we understand scripture and also the role of Jesus's body here on earth. The values are listed on our website, and some of you may have seen them before you ever came to embrace. But I guarantee that if you've been around even a few weeks, you've probably begun to experience them and the unique flavor they give to the way we do life together at Embrace. They are the language we use and the water we swim in here. I've been at Embrace almost eight years, and I can say with confidence that our church's culture has been fundamentally shaped by these values, which the lead team articulated the first year I was here. So for the last seven years or so, we have been investing in ministry intentionally, shaped by these thoughts, these guiding values. And they've been taking root and bearing fruit because of it. Over and over again, the choices we've made have been a reflection of our value of keeping Jesus at the center. We've talked more times than I can count over the years about learning and unlearning and relearning and growing and staying humble because we really are committed to being gritty disciples and to being comfortable being uncomfortable and to keeping it real. And this week's value, church equals diverse family, has been a powerful guiding value for us in the way that we shape teams and ministries and even most recently our discernment process. If ever you want to know or if ever we really need to remember who we really are, these values can help remind us. In some ways, in this generation, and especially in recent days, it seems like the wider church in America has forgotten what it's called to be. Wouldn't you say? In a time when many say our country is more divided than it has been since the Civil War, the church is often reflecting that same spirit of division instead of the unity that Jesus prayed his followers would demonstrate in John chapter 17. We see Christians flying flags and towing the line of different political parties and separating themselves from anyone who doesn't agree. We hear one Christian say terrible, judgmental things about another. A lot of us are not sure how to talk to some of our family members even anymore. And even at the systemic level, we see churches pulling apart in disagreement. I've heard countless stories from folks who have been welcomed to participate at a church up to a certain point and then told that they have to sign a document indicating that they agree with every single doctrinal position of that church. And if they don't, they can't really belong. How deeply painful is rejection for the sake of uniformity? Too many people have been welcomed to churches only to discover that the welcome ends where any sort of difference begins. In our own denomination, we have experienced pain this past year because of the reality of division. Are we as the church called first and foremost to stand for or against particular issues? Is protection of hot button doctrines the greatest good? Is a firm line in the sand the witness we are called to reflect to the world? Well, if so, 
then division is surely a natural byproduct of our efforts. But maybe, just maybe, we are called to be and to do something different. Spoiler alert, the witness of scripture would say that we are called to something different. Jesus himself shows us a different way, a different identity, and a different vision for his church. We started the series last week with Jesus at the center because he is the focal point. He is the one through whom we interpret and understand everything else that matters. And true to form, we can look to Jesus to see what the church is meant to look like, if it's going to be effective transforming both its people and the world. And that snapshot does not reveal a loose association of people who all look or act or think or even believe the same things. Exactly what we see instead is a dynamic, messy, diverse family. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was in the business of bringing totally different kinds of people together around himself. The people he sat down together at the dinner table were not there because they cared about and liked and valued the same things. In fact, they pretty likely didn't even like each other. When Jesus called the 12 disciples, he selected among them some clear social enemies. He called Levi, the tax collector, along with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the fishermen. In their first century Greco-Roman society, tax collectors were known for their greed and corruption but also specifically for the back-breaking taxes and tariffs they leveled on the goods of, you guessed it, fishermen. Can you imagine how awkward those early dinners would have been? Those guys would have never shared a table together if not for Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus taught and corrected this ragtag group of diverse disciples. He began to give them a language and a ministry to share. He began to give them a new worldview and invite them into a kingdom that transcended their social roles and divisions in the Greco-Roman society. Throughout his ministry, Jesus also made space for and elevated women and children and even those who by Jewish law would have been considered unclean. And though he focused first and foremost on Israel, Jesus also demonstrated time and again that the power of the kingdom was also for Gentiles. He made it clear that the only real measure of whether or not someone could belong with him was the posture of their heart and a commitment to walking out the same calling he himself was living, that being doing the will of his Father. In Matthew 12, 49 through 50, Jesus puts a label on this diverse group he has created. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These people who are following him, partnering in his mission, and transcending social boundaries together, they are his mother and sisters and brothers. They are to him and to one another family. What's most striking about this exchange in Matthew 12 is the fact that it, this bold statement from Jesus comes in response to someone telling him that his nuclear family, Mary and his brothers by Mary and Joseph, are waiting for him outside a certain gathering. It's then at that moment that Jesus looks around at his disciples and the crowd of followers and says, these are truly my family. And I don't believe Jesus is rejecting or disowning his nuclear family here. 
But instead, he's communicating something about the bond meant to be created between his followers, that it's even deeper and truer and more lasting in a spiritual and eternal sense than even the bonds recognized by human society. Jesus has not just created a countercultural group or club. This is a counterculturally diverse family. He himself has called it that. And this vision that Jesus casts for his followers when he's living among them only flowers more fully after Jesus has died and risen again and ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit. The diversity of the group continues to increase in pretty dramatic ways. In Acts 2, we find the account of Pentecost, where we are told, There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Do you see there the intention to be very clear that this is an incredibly diverse group of people? Every nation under heaven. Can't be more inclusive than that. That's who has gathered together at the time the Holy Spirit makes her first and fiery appearance among the followers of Jesus. As the Spirit falls upon the disciples, the words they are speaking are suddenly transformed so that they are understood by all of the different nationalities present. As every person is able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own tongue, many are cut to the heart, is what we're told, and 3,000 people join the family of Jesus that day. Later in the same chapter, we learn that these believers gather together daily. They eat together, they learn together, and they share all things in common. That sounds a lot like family, doesn't it? And honestly, the fact that these early followers of Jesus had gained a new family was desperately good news for them. Many of them had been disowned by their families of origin for choosing to belong to a religion that was seen as anti-Roman. Many of them had literally given up everything to follow Jesus. And along with Jesus, they gained his mothers and brothers and sisters. As the book of Acts continues, the apostles begin to discover God's plan to expand the diversity of his family, not just to Jews of every nation, but also to Gentile people. Peter has a dream where it becomes clear to him that Gentiles are no longer to be labeled unclean, and he goes forth to the house of a man named Cornelius and baptizes all of Cornelius' family into the family of Jesus. The apostles are then sent out all over the world to continue the Gentile mission, expanding the kingdom of God and the family of Jesus to any and all who would receive him. And then the entire rest of the New Testament is made up of epistles that teach the theology of this new way of belonging that Jesus has inaugurated. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we hear this powerful, stirring testament to the work Jesus has done, bringing together those who previously would have never belonged with or to each other. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, both Jews and Gentiles are brought together into one household or one family, the one belonging to God. Jesus has done away with barriers and divisions. Did you hear the emphasis on one over and over again? Jesus has created unity out of the most diverse possible group of candidates. And the powerful implication is that to carry on his ministry, Jesus' followers must do the same. The family must keep expanding, especially by drawing in people who have historically been told they don't belong. We also find other New Testament authors, like the Apostle John and the author of Hebrews, attempting to more fully express the mystery of how we have been made family. 1 John 3.1 exclaims, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And Hebrews 2.10-11 focuses on how our status as children now also makes us siblings to Jesus. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The epistles do much more than simply teach this beautiful theology, though. Maybe even more pervasively, we find within them early church leaders wrestling with the practical implications of maintaining a life together among such diverse people. As we already discovered in Romans, the Apostle Paul urges both the Jews and the Gentiles to show each other grace and to learn to live alongside one another, giving allowances where they need to, even though they have incredibly different backgrounds and understanding of the world and practices as well. These same New Testament letters are also filled up with exhortation about loving and forgiving sacrificially, just like Jesus has done. And honestly, like really only family ever attempts to do. In the same chapter of 1 John that provided us with the beautiful theology of our adoption as children, we also read these practical instructions. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And later in Hebrews, chapter 10, we are given these practical instructions. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. When both John and the author of Hebrews want to exhort the followers of Jesus to love one another, encourage one another, and intentionally meet with and spend time strengthening one another, each of them points directly back to the familial connection that Jesus has established. They each address their exhortation to the brothers and sisters. They make clear that these family ties are the foundation for love and encouragement and togetherness. And that's just a couple of examples from two different letters. But over and over again, the biblical picture of the church as a diverse family is both clear and compelling. Church is meant to be family, a dynamic, messy, unbelievably diverse family. This is the picture of his church that Jesus offers us, both through his own life and ministry, and then also through the spirit-empowered continuance of his ministry through the early church. Does the church always get this right? Are we good at being family? Well, certainly not always. But does that mean we give up on the vision and the identity that Jesus has given us? Do we give up on each other, forsake meeting together, and decide to go it alone? Also, no. We keep pressing on and pressing in together because the biblical picture reveals to us that participating in a church family is not an extracurricular activity, something that we just squish in if we have the space. Rather, for a Christian, belonging to and participating with a church family is a lifeline. It is a natural nurturing of the connection that is meant to make us strong and effective. And it is quite literally who we are. A Christian is a mother or a brother or a sister, fundamentally in relationship to another. At Embrace, we not only believe this is our identity, and our calling, but we also value it. And there are a whole slew of practical implications we can identify as flowing from this value. For one, it means we prize unity and not uniformity. In the biblical metaphors of family and also the body of Christ, we recognize it is the diversity of the members that contributes to this powerful countercultural witness of unity that the Holy Spirit gives the church. Therefore, we prioritize doing the work required of us to maintain the diversity of the family Jesus is creating. We embrace mess and work through dysfunction and learn to humble ourselves and offer grace. We choose to let the main things be what unite us, while refusing to let a million little differences divide us. Our value of this identity also means we prioritize making space at the table, quite literally every Monday night. We get people who have no business sitting down together to share a table and a meal. But more than that, to come to recognize that they belong to each other. It means we speak up and stand in solidarity with and work alongside those who are told they don't matter or don't have a place in this family. Because Jesus wants to claim them as family too. And it means when we have an issue, we speak up and we work it out so we can move forward together. When we disagree, we come back to the biblical mandates of love and forgiveness in self-sacrificial, radical ways. We put in the work 
to keep showing up and keep belonging to Jesus and to each other. And even as I hear myself painting this picture of radical commitment, I want to pause and acknowledge and speak to those of us who have been wounded by a church that we tried with all our heart to love as family. I will be the first to acknowledge that there is a point in time when staying committed to a church is no longer worth the effort, or more especially, worth the cost. There are some places where dysfunction is a normal operating mode and not an occasional reality or a growing edge. When there are hard hearts and deaf ears receiving your efforts, even Jesus would tell you to shake the dust off your feet and move on. I'm not trying to argue that anyone should stay inside a burning church and be consumed. What I am saying, though, is when there are ears to hear and hearts soft enough to listen and respond, we honor each other as family by talking about the issues, by wrestling through hard things together, instead of assuming that we're against each other or on some sort of opposing sides. When John or myself or another leader tells you our doors are open and we want to talk, if you are struggling with anything you've heard or experienced at Embrace, we actually really mean that. And depending on your background or where you've come to this place from, that might be hard to believe. But it's true. Why? because we value the church's identity as a diverse family. We want to follow Jesus together with people who do not look or act or think exactly the same way. We want to be diverse, and we truly desire to put in the ongoing work required to be and stay a family. The, to value the reality that church equals diverse family is to be deeply committed to Jesus and to one another for the long haul even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when we don't like it, and especially when we don't feel like it. We commit to one another deeply with our resources, attention, time, service, and gifts. And we choose to be as committed to our church family as we are by nature committed to, and sometimes honestly quite stuck with, our families of origin. Collectively, we claim this value, and we are growing all the time in our grasp of it. But today, I also wonder if we can't make some application of this value a bit more personal, too. I wonder, what might it look like for you to participate at Embrace, like you value our identity as a diverse family? To help us dive into that big picture wondering, I've got a short collection of reflection questions for us this morning. You may want to jot them down or take a picture of the screen, but I believe if we spend a few intentional moments considering, we can all discover an invitation to be personally more deeply shaped by this particular value and identity. So let's take just a couple of minutes to listen to what Jesus might be saying to us today as he continues by his spirit to draw us together in this space. The questions will be up for you on the screen. <laughs> 